Welcome to the Rhetorical Leadership uh, uh, Podcast. My guest today is Sharice uh, Bukalski, who, who is an appellate attorney in the United States. Aside from a JD, Sharice uh, holds advanced degrees in creative writing and rhetoric, that's where we met, and her rhetoric thesis, thesis focused on the inter intersection of rhetoric and poetics in the written works of Kenneth Burke. As an attorney, Sharice has uh, clerked at both the uh, Utah Court of Appeals and Utah Supreme Court. And she began her practice at the Utah Attorney General's Office and is now a partner at an appellate boutique. Welcome, Sharice. Thank you for having me, David. I'm really excited to be here today. So first of all, we need to do a little shout out to our uh, our teacher and mentor, Greg Clark. I think that's where we <laughs> where you learned we got uh, got uh, to have an appreciation of rhetoric and, and Kenneth Burke together. And uh, yes, Greg yeah. is a legend He's and a legend. Um, just such an amazing human and. I'm, I'm so grateful that he he kind of found me as I was sitting in, you know, my MFA program and found out that I was interested in eco-poetics. So that's a Master of Fine Arts for those who aren't in America. <laughs> yeah, Master of Fine Arts and, and my emphasis was poetry and I was really interested in eco-poetics and um, just exploring nature. And he kind of sat me down and said, if you are interested in eco-poetics, then you must study Kenneth Burke, who is the father of eco-criticism. And it changed, it just changed everything about my brain. I mean, heading into that line of inquiry and study and discourse, it was just Awesome. So, so you, I'm great. You, you were headhunted. For me, it was uh, just a chance, really, just as part of the program. Yeah. But I have to say, in his classes, just we would prepare something almost every week, something written, and yeah. receive feedback almost every week on, on what we had written. And it was first with that interaction there where we where I was able to write and get feedback and write and get feedback and, and rewrite. It was really during that class, I feel like I started thinking as an academic, mm -hmm. you know, like started being a bit more careful with my wording, uh, with my sources, thinking about potential implications. Um, and, you know, uh, some of his praise when I actually did a really good job of piece of work, I mean, it made my day. Yeah. <laughs> made my week. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he was such an engaged professor. Um, he cared so much about the way that our our thoughts were developing and the way that our ideas were developing and the way that we were developing as people. And, um, and he cared so much about the content as well. I think he was so passionate about rhetoric and about um, identity and about helping us to understand what was being said and to develop maybe a, a system or a method um, to approach thinking critically. Yep. So, and yeah. uh, so after that, yeah, so I took the academic route and Sharice uh, took, well, also an academic route, but also went into practical application of rhetoric in her legal career. And so what I'm always interested in is obviously what I missed out on, the, on that, not going that track, um, as in what are some things that you feel, first of all, that rhetoric, uh, your rhetoric training kind of helped you to see that perhaps, I don't know, that you perhaps wouldn't have seen otherwise in, in your legal work. And what are some things that taking, looking the other way, um, you think people studying rhetoric should know based on your experience in a very practical field where arguments have consequences? So those are two really interesting questions. Um, as far as my training in rhetoric goes and how it's been useful to me as an attorney, I think that that has, that question has so many answers. Um, I think first there's a perceived usefulness. So as I was interviewing for judicial clerkships, every single judge that I interviewed with wanted to talk to me about my rhetoric degree. Huh. Um, 
almost nobody wanted to talk to me about my MFA in poetry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So if you kind of compare those, um, they just weren't interested. You know, they didn't think maybe that that had any practical application, even though I think that studying language at that level, at the level of poetry for years and thinking about language at that level greatly informed my ability to think about the law. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think that it was equally useful. Um, so, you know, going into, if you have to choose between, you know, rhetoric or studying, you know, the language arts in some other way, I think, I think while they have different focuses, they have different source content, obviously, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're both very useful. But as far as my particular training in rhetoric goes, I mean, we studied Kenneth Burke, which kind of colors everything in this conversation. And so the training that I got um, moved past just a conversation of audience mm -hmm. to identification um, and who that audience was. And I think that that was incredibly useful as I look back. Um, and, and I think about the way that I formulate my audience it's, or my arguments, mm -hmm. it's always um, very particularly to my audience. I think about the judges who are going to be um, reading and deciding the case. And I think about the types of things that persuade them. But this is something that all good appellate advocates do. Mm -hmm. Um, there, if you're a good appellate advocate, you know, the judiciary that you're appearing before, um, in fact, at the federal in the United States at the Supreme court level, um, you might have an amicus brief or kind of just like a helpful brief that is filed to the court, right. um, that targets one particular judge. So you have, um, cause you know, that, cause some, that made the, the deciding vote or something, right? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So if, if you've done, you know, if you've thought through the issue and you know what the weak points are um, and you know what the strong points are and you know which judges are going to be more inclined to rule in your favor, then you kind of target those outliers. Mm -hmm. um, and but this. Yeah. So like but, I said, this the, is something that Lloyd Bitzer would call the rhetorical audience, right? The ones who can actually yeah. make a difference. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Those who can actually make a difference in the conversation. Mm -hmm and can make a difference in the outcome. So, so this is something that, um, you know, as you draft your document, your legal document, you really have to consider the audience. Um, and when I was interviewing for clerkships, I remember one of the judges asked me, um, who is the audience of an opinion? So like a, you know, an opinion from the court. Right. And I, I was able to talk to him about, you know, who that audience was and the many different audiences that you're addressing you know you're, you're talking to the legal community you're talking to the um to the client mm -hmm. who might not have a good understanding of the law i mean very rarely do clients understand really what's going on the parties mm -hmm. who are who are interested right. they don't have um that understanding of the legal terminology so you really have to broaden your your conversation and make it as simple as possible for um for the parties and for the public. And um, and he he was very interested in audience. Um, but as 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 a practitioner, I think identification um, and trying to to frame up or tee up your your client um, so that they seem sympathetic to the judges mm -hmm. in particular, right. like who are these judges? Are they parents? You know, maybe you bring that out in your client. You talk about, um, you know, how they're a parent or so, something. So just like to that. specify, right? So identification, uh, just to clarify for the audience what that means, right? This is Kenneth Burke's term that um, that you, in some ways, how you create a um, almost empathy, a kind of way of seeing yourself in the other or that you are part of the other in some kind of way, uh -huh. right? kind of some kind of consubstantiality between them mm -hmm. and you. And that 
you are able to relate to an audience by talking their language, by showing that you share their values. Um, yeah. Right. Those, those kind of things. Yeah. So it, it goes to both ethos and pathos because you become credible. Um, now, now the way that this is implicated as far as the rhetorical triangle, it's a little bit convoluted because, um, you know, I'm the attorney. And so I'm, I'm representing the client. My credibility is at stake. The credibility of the client isn't necessarily at stake, but, um, the character of the client is definitely um, very present in the case. Right. So if you can if you can present a client who is sympathetic or who has good character to the court, then that will be a client who they they can identify with. Because I mean, these judges are upstanding individuals. You have to go through so many judicial screening processes in order to um, you, you're screened by the you know once you. Once you fill out an application, you're screened by the judicial nominating committee. Mm -hmm. You get interviewed by the governor, um, the governor's staff, and then the legislature has to clear you. So, I mean, there's so many, these these are really amazing people. Um, they haven't made a lot of wrong turns in their life. Right. And so if you consider the fact that those are the people who are um, determining the outcome of your, your criminal defendant client, it, it's really hard to put them on the same level and to try to tap into that um, to that identification and credibility and uh, character so that you're so that you're you're kind of saying, hey, this is a person just like you. Um, but that's what we try to do <clears throat> as much as we can as as criminal defense clients on appeal. So I mean, it's, it's you, work, hard. you work on so you work on people that have already been found guilty by a jury yeah right? and that's yeah. you're appealing the case and so you're exclusively arguing in front of judges that if a mistake was made here or that, that this was wrong somehow what mm -hmm. what happened at the lower courts right yeah so yeah so examples i guess you can't talk about specifics but i would say like <laughs> if you want to talk about like say well, if, I, I can talk about yeah. cases yeah. i mean okay there are maybe not my <clears throat> ongoing cases, but yeah. <laughs> um, but past cases or or court opinions that I've read, I've noticed um, as a practitioner that the cases that are reversed the most often are the cases where the defendant is someone who you can identify with as maybe um, as a judge. So, and not, so not, not a satanic ex murderer kind of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, because the thing is, in order to get a reversal on appeal, mm -hmm. you've got to show both error and prejudice. Right. And so that is where you asked me earlier <clears throat> where where pathos comes in on the law. I think that's where it comes in. When I say earlier, I mean in a prior conversation, yeah. um, not this conversation, but you have to... And maybe we should go over the rhetorical triangle real quick for for everyone who's not um, a student of rhetoric or hasn't investigated it that far. So the rhetorical triangle is kind of the the first <laughs> line of the conversation that you have anytime you talk about rhetoric. Um, right. The three things <laughs> we are persuaded by, according to Aristotle. Yeah, according to Aristotle. So we've got you got ethos, pathos, logos, and and people pronounce these differently. So people say pathos, pathos, pathos yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but I think I think that so logos is logic or rationale, the reasons the structure that you of get. the argument, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's everything to do with the ideas behind the actual argument itself. Mm -hmm. um, and the speaker doesn't really factor in. Um, it's just the reasons that you give and how you give them. Right. And and the, the I guess the stereotype is that uh, only log logos matters in court proceedings. Like you try to get away all kind yeah. of matters of ethos and pathos. And of course, in reality, that's not the truth and uh, not necessarily what you want either, because you don't want yeah. you don't want machines to make these decisions. You want people to make decisions. You can relate to mm -hmm. others, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the gold standard that everyone shoots for is that the buck stops with logos. 
I think that is because that makes things predictable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter which, you know, which panel of a court might consider your case. Although, of course, it does. (laughs) I mean, I mean, you know, logos obviously can be be abused too. You know, stats can lie. You know, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, but yeah, that's that's often. I mean, John Rawls he kind of claimed that we should do away with all ethos and pathos arguments in the public forum and should, everything should just be logos based. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in, when it comes to the law, things are logos based. I mean, you, you, you can write up your fact pattern and present it to the judge in a way that, um, make sure your clients seem like a credible person mm-hmm. or a person you want out in society. Um, but all of the arguments, they all start with a conversation about the law. Mm-hmm. And so you take this in appellate briefing, you have this fact section and it's kind of the introduction to what happened. Why are we sitting here today? Um, we, this is the story. This is the narrative. This is, Uh, what my client did um and this is what happened at trial so that's kind of the fact section and then you come to the legal arguments and these are the this is the legal basis for reversal in this case so you have to identify an error um and you have to explain why your client why that error prejudiced the client's case in a way that is significant Mm -hmm. And so um, it really attempts, the system attempts to, to place logos at the forefront and to, to make the, the rationale for reversal mm-hmm. very logos-based. Right. But, but then that, 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 that just creates the room, session, that, that just creates the, the room for doubt in some ways about the, yeah. about the, about the correctness of this, of this judgment. And then comes the point where they have to, essentially uh, use their judgment, right, as judges? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've got logos, uh, you've got um, ethos, which is really the um, the credibility or character of the speaker. Mm-hmm. So um, this is why, you know, certain people, and, and, and wrapped up in the character of the speaker is the value system that that speaker represents or holds, right? right? And so if you have matching value systems, then that that does a lot of work toward accepting um, a statement that any given person makes. So if you if you say, okay, um, I identify with this person's value system, then um, you're gonna you're gonna accept that person's statement, whatever whatever argument they're making. Um, a lot more easily and you're going to do less of a little bit less work um, kind of investigating the the logic right behind their argument Mm -hmm. Um, so matching value systems are really important um, and it's really important work toward identification so ethos pathos or pathos um, logos okay so now we're at pathos or pathos, mm-hmm. this is um, kind of the emotional aspect of the argument. This is this is the um, this is where photojournalism comes in. If you can produce like a really evocative, emotionally evocative, um, you know, argument, mm-hmm. something that. Well, I'm, I represent the defendant a lot, but something that the state will do, the state tries to tap into this all the time. So they present their own facts section mm-hmm. and they'll talk about the blood and the gore. Right. Of the the, gr- the gr- gruesomeness of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They'll talk a lot about the victim mm-hmm. um, and or, or the alleged victim. Um, they will, they will try to play up through, you know, the photos of what happened even though if you look at it from a completely, you know, logical standpoint, photos are oftentimes completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. They only serve to bring in this emotional dimension to the trial um, and to the evidentiary picture. So, so um, 
emotion because like, the fa facts have mostly already been established we're not talking about a picture to be able to find some kind of new fact detail that wasn't yeah. there before yeah it's too yeah uh, i mean well the the at, 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 that, at that point at that point when you're talking about it is that the facts have been somewhat determined already what you're talking about yeah. so they often use I the mean, pictures just in order for the emotional impact of it essentially yeah i mean the the fact that the jury is trying to figure out mm -hmm. is if this person did this thing that they were accused of doing and i think rarely photos contribute to that analysis right um just from a defense attorney perspective i mean what, what, it, what it tells the jury is that this could happen to me and we need to put this guy away or this lady yeah. away because otherwise stuff like that could happen to us too right i mean you feel threatened by it you feel yeah. Right. So I, I think I mean, there, there's... There, there's an un understated argument right here that right that we here here's something awful that we need to remove from our society as far away as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And and it has very little to do with whether that person sitting there in that chair did that thing that they were used of doing. Right. Um, in some cases, I can imagine in some cases there might be some relevant you know, non-prejudicial reason to bring something in. But prejudice um, is a consideration in every single evidentiary ruling at a trial. Mm -hmm. um, so first you've got relevance and that kind of plays into logic, right? The is law. this, mm -hmm. yeah, is this relevant to the determination of guilt? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm talking about, my firm does, civil cases as well, but I handle a lot of criminal appeals. So I'm just kind of talking about the criminal aspect of the law here. Mm -hmm. But um, so is is the evidence relevant? And then second, um, will it prejudice the jury? Mm -hmm. And that is a consideration for every single piece of evidence that comes into a trial. And that has to do a lot with pathos. So, so is this So you going can say that these pictures actually were kind of unnecessarily incendiary or or yeah yeah or yeah uh, but the but the, it's interesting because the language that you have to that you're dealing with is whether or not they're unfairly prejudicial right and so they have a they have to be relevant but b they can't be unfairly prejudicial and so there is some wiggle room there for for the state to say well every single piece of evidence is prejudicial mm -hmm. on a certain level I mean, this is why it's relevant because it—it's—they're hoping that it'll inch the jury toward a conviction. I mean, um, some some specific examples there that I, I can think of, even just having watched as a Norwegian, as you know, uh, I remember a Supreme Court or a, a specific case about an axe murderer, a lady, um, and the them actually bringing the axe that was actually mm -hmm. used into the courtroom. And swinging it and 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 uh, on a on a piece of wood, I believe, to like show like, poof, and obviously they made the wood very soft to make sure like it goes like deep in, and you can yeah. how that goes into human flesh and so on. Oh my gosh! Right, so that, <laughs> that's that that's an example there, right? Like what we're talking about in pathos is what evokes um, strong emotional responses, very often very vivid description or imagery. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you can see it, you can imagine you're standing there, and it evokes the same kind yeah. of revulsion. Uh, as it, as if you were there in the moment yourself, right? Yeah, there there was a, um, a this case is so hard. There was a case um, that I had where the client had been convicted of murder, and at the trial, at the jury trial, the state had him stand holding a gun, pointing it at the prosecutor. And it was a facsimile, so it was a fake gun. Um, How could they do that? I mean, couldn't the, couldn't, couldn't the defendant just say, like, no, I'm not going to do that? Obviously, here you're making them yeah, see me as it, a murderer. It, I, it, it was, why would, I, yeah. But why would the defense was, attorney not object to that? That's, that's yeah, that's I thought it was so prejudicial. I yeah. thought it was so prejudicial. And the defense attorney did object. But is um, that and this is this is so interesting, David. Mm -hmm. This conversation, this right here, is exactly why identification is so important. The state had controlled the narrative 
of who this guy was the entire trial, mm-hmm. um, the appeal. And by the time we were able, by the term, by the time I was able to enter into the case, um, it was at the Supreme Court and we were asking um, for the court to, to um, review this case. And I really tried to play up the fact that he was a dad. I mean, the facts leading up to, to this murder mm-hmm. or this killing um, were basically that he was like a really hardworking dad. He was working late. He had a bunch of cash in his pocket because he had just gotten paid. He was a dishwasher. Um, he, he was um, here in the country illegally, so he got paid under the table. Mm-hmm. And he was, someone was attempting to rob him. And the facts that the state were trying to play up were that he was a former gang um, member and uh, that this person that he was with had been listening to gang music that was, um, you know, offensive to him or something like that. I mean, something that to me that just didn't even make any sense. Considering the trajectory of his life, he had been a former gang member, but it was so clear that he had left the gang months before. Um, he, he just that evening had dropped his, you know, had gone to see his little daughter, um, had gone to his mother's grave. I mean, if you're able to paint him as a family man, mm-hmm. as opposed to a gang member, there's just a world of difference there, right? Why would a family man kill somebody because of music they were listening to? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's just, it's incongruent. Um, but, but of course the state argues, no, 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 this is a violent gang member who has still had um, some sort of interest apparently in his gang because he killed somebody because he was listening to music. Um, to me, it seemed a lot more reasonable to think this guy was, had just met this guy that night from his roommate and they're walking down the street and his roommate knew that he had this money on his person and had told the guy before. And, you know, his story, my client's story was that, um, that they went out and he got robbed at gunpoint. He was able to fight the assailant, grab the gun and and shoot him. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, at trial, at trial, um, he the, the state had him hold the gun and pointed at the prosecutor. I mean, to me, that was just so prejudicial. It's insane. Yeah. Um, and and the only reason and the Supreme Court mentioned in the opinion how problematic this was, um, but that there was no evidence. And this is this is this is where I think there's a little bit of wiggle room here, um, where you know, maybe credibility and pathos come into play and overwhelm logos. There was no evidence in the record describing the gun that he was forced to hold. So for all they knew, it was a water gun. Mm. Of course, it wasn't a water gun. It was, you know. It looked deadly. Nine millimeter (laughs) facsimile. but there was no evidence in the record and you can't bring in extra record evidence on appeal. So I couldn't stand wow. there before I couldn't stand there before the court and say, um, this was this type of gun versus, you know, a water gun. And they said, well, we just don't know if it was that prejudicial because we don't know what the gun looked like. And so because of that, now I think that had the So, so had, you're, you're not allowed to go there and and talk to the judge and talk about what was this gun? Like, what was the color of it? How big was it? Did it look real? You're not allowed to go there and go afterwards and, and get more evidence about no. the, about this stuff. No, that is, yeah, that's insane. Yeah. So you're, you, you're really stuck with whatever is on the record. Mm. And the question and argument was, Hey, do we know what this gun looked like? And there was no evidence in, in the record about the gun, what can, it looked can't like. you just infer logically that you don't think the state would have him stand up there holding a water gun? I think you absolutely can, and I think that had the court viewed him as a family man instead of a gang member, mm-hmm. that's what the court would have done. 
Um, so and we're talking about where... appeal that failed here. We're talking about the person yeah. that's now been put away. Yeah. Because yeah, he's still in because prison. Because defense said that maybe it was a water gun. Or yeah. the prosecution said maybe it was a water gun they showed in court. Yeah. We, we don't know. Well, how, how can we ever know this? Yeah, how, how, how can we know yeah. what it looked like? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that's like, one of those I would have almost said, like, to the, are you an idiot? Like, seriously, do you think the prosecution would have had him there stand holding a water gun? Well, and then when you the lose point was from the record that you wanted to show him. Yeah. No. Yeah. Hmm. So that, that to me, that case right there is such a good example of the way that pathos hmm. um, and logos kind of come up against each other and also ethos if you're looking at the credibility of a client. Right. right. Um, and if a court wants to rule in your favor, they can find a way to do that. And if they don't want to rule in your favor, then they won't. And this, the the sad part is that the state just controlled the narrative so strongly um, that he was this gang member. Um, and it's, it's kind of sad because one of the facts that I think influenced the court um, was that when once he was sent to prison, he had to reaffiliate with this gang. And to survive, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to survive, right? So there's there there was this record evidence that he had reaffiliated with the gang or had not necessarily returned, but um, they were looking out for him or something like that. And to me, it made sense that as an ex-gang member going into this gang culture of the prison, you would need to affiliate with a gang in order for in order to survive. Yeah. Um, it didn't necessarily mean that he was had any kind of um, loyalty to that gang when he shot the person. I mean, he had, he was working. Like, I, I would I join a gang in prison. Like seriously, if there was the kind of prison environment yeah, exactly. in America where you like, you it's that, or like you become someone who could become a male rape victim, you know, like, you know, <laughs> you, you find whatever alliances you can, if you can't trust the system. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely correct. And um, I mean, the evidence in trial was that he was working, you know, 60 to 70 hours a week as a dishwasher. That's not a gang member. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, he was not, he was not affiliated with the gang at the time. I don't think that anyway. So to me, to me, um, that just shows that if you can get your audience to identify with your, your client, then it does so much work I mean, toward showing prejudice. The 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 case that uh, Kenneth Burke makes, right, is that we are all of us this kind of huge conglomerate of different identifications that connect us with certain groups or with other groups, right? And so take mm -hmm. a certain sliver out of that, and you say like, "Ha, he's a gang member," right? Take another sl yeah. sliver out of this, and he's like, he, "This guy's a worker. He's a father. He's a." You know all these other things, and I guess that's where Kenneth Burke says, right? That's why because we have all these uh, these uh, conflicting identifications, that's the work of the rhetor to select certain as uh, as um, important and others as insignificant, right? Yeah, and so yeah. That's what the state did there, in that sense, and worked in their sense. Yeah, so there's these yeah. these cycles of association and disassociation or dissociation. Yeah, they just they just made the the gang aspect of his life overwhelm the hardworking parent aspect of his life, mm. and you wonder um, how much race goes into that, um, how much you know class goes into that. See his, yeah. um, not that I have any evidence that there's any bias um, from any court in particular, but as a student of rhetoric, you have to account for race and class and things like that as part of the identification analysis. That you're performing when you um, choose which facts to highlight and which facts to um, try to bury a little bit um, in front of your court. Hmm. So it's just a really important part of um, and part of that. And not that I've ever, in any of my opinions, I've never said this is a white person right. or this is a Hispanic person or or any of that. I've never that has never come in, right. um, but. But certain facts lead you to to wonder about the race of. You can often know. infer based on habits, cultural vari yeah. vari variabilities, etc. Names, names. I mean, I think and, and specifically, I think this this person. It was very. I mean, we knew we knew that he was Hispanic. Right. Um, 
and we knew that he was um, from, I think he was from Argentina or something like that mm. and had come as a dreamer and he had come over with his parents and that was why he was illegal, um, illegally here. So, but anyway, there are, there are other cases um, where you have defendants who maybe look a little bit more like um, the average or yeah, the average person in here. That area. In, yeah. Yeah. And so one of these cases um, that I'd like to highlight is actually a private case. It was not um, a defendant. It was a plaintiff. So mm -hmm. in, in um, yeah, outside of the criminal arena, you've got the civil arena and you've got um, the plaintiff and the respondent there and, and there it's Rather the plaintiff. Than the defendant and the, yeah. 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 So the, the defendant here was an insurance company and the plaintiff was a grandmother. Um, she worked at a school and um, she'd been hit on the freeway. Her car had been hit by a semi-truck. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And semi-truck had a history of, of the driver had a history of poor driving um, and had even been awarded and encouraged to meet all of his quotas at his company. Um, and so, um, but he had this, this big long list of complaints from people driving on the freeway with him, with these, you know, this, these cement trucks that are just tons and tons. And so the company was, was aware that he was a poor driver. Um, nevertheless, they employed him, they awarded him, even in the face of getting all of these, um, complaints mm -hmm. and he, he hit her car. Uh, with his big, huge cement truck. And um, what happened was the law um, of plaintiff's law here, as far as torts go, um, it was undeveloped and it was unclear whether her case had met the statutory requirements to actually receive the, the money award that the jury gave her mm. so the jury gave her a money award but in order to meet to for her to collect that money she had to meet a threshold showing of you know one of five different factors and the question was whether the evidence was sufficient under two or three of those factors mm -hmm. uh, to to call to, to call forth the 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 payment that she had been yeah. awarded yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the district court decided that it was not, that the evidence that was there was not, um, didn't meet the evidentiary threshold required of the PIP threshold statute, right. um, small injury insurance statute. And so you, you took and her case then, or is it? Yeah, yeah. so we took her case. Um, we, we took her case and, you know, the law was undeveloped and there was one area of law that we actually were arguing for the court that, and we went straight to the Utah Supreme Court here. Mm -hmm. We filed a letter of retention so the court would retain the case instead of send the case to the Utah Court of Appeals. And so the court was only, the case was only in the Utah Supreme Court. And um, it retained the case and it also considered whether our jurisdiction here in Utah should go against the majority um, in, in another area of court law. Mm -hmm. And we argued that it should, uh, and for very good reason, for very good reason. I thought that the, the law um, that it was considering on that issue was poorly decided. It was decided a long time ago mm -hmm. um, by with maybe some slop, sloppy thinking. And so anyway, we were really up against, um, uh, up against something with this case, but we took it because we you know, it was just very sad that she had gotten her very small interview award taken from her. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually argued this case as well as the last one that I talked about. I mm -hmm. argued this case um, in front of the Utah Supreme Court. It was our first case coming together as the appellate group um, that we represented somebody together. It was really exciting. And um, we ended up winning almost every single issue. There was one issue that the court didn't decide um, and they decided to leave it for another day. Um, but we won every single issue. She ended up getting her, her, um, her money award, uh, but she was a grandmother who worked at a school and, um, she was a, a person who had been injured by this, you know, cement mm -hmm. truck 
Right. And um, she was somebody who never really complained and her quality of life had been greatly diminished. She, she was in so much pain that she couldn't play with her grandchildren anymore. Oh, and yeah. she was just a really, yeah, like a really sympathetic um, person. So I think in answering your question, maybe what it was um, that rhetoric did to help me um, or what it added to my law degree, I think there's, there's emphasizing good facts and there's minimizing bad facts. Mm -hmm. But I think the next level is identification and helping the court to identify with your client. So anything that you can do to help the court to feel like your client is similar to them, mm -hmm. I think is very powerful work that you can do. Um, there, there are other cases here, even in the criminal arena, um, there was a dad who was, now this was not my case, but these two, these two cases, mm -hmm. their father cases, one of them was a spanking case. And one of them was a child sex abuse case, mm -hmm. um, where it was just tickling right. 12 year old girls at a birthday party. And the dad was tickling the daughter and had tickled a couple of the friends and the friends accused him of sexually abusing them. And later on, I mean, I think it's very sketchy under those facts. Um, I think it scares parents, right? You know, I'm a parent, I tickle my children. Um, maybe I wouldn't tickle my kids friends. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know, but he did, he tickled them and they were, there was this little tickle mm -hmm. situation. And anyway, um, it was reversed and for very good legal reasons. I won't go into the legal reasons. I'm just focusing on identification at this point, but right. the, here we have, a. Uh, the father, you know, at the birthday party, uh, probably similar socioeconomic situation. Um, there's, there were no facts that I saw that suggested that, you know, he was in a different class than maybe any of the judges who would be considering the case. Hmm. And you go to the spanking case, um, there, you know, it, it was a case where a dad had, um, I forget the exact outcome of, you know, what had happened. Like he had lost parental visitation rights with his son, but his son was throwing some like three hour tirade and had hit his grandmother and just refused to calm down. It was very violent. And mm -hmm. the dad spanked at the end of the three hour tirade. And then the mom, um, the parents were divorced. The mom saw Mark on his, her son a couple of days later. Mm -hmm. And the Mark was the problem. Spanking wasn't the problem. The mark is the problem hmm. here in Utah. Um, but again, that case was reversed. I think under the facts of that case, um, the dad looked very sympathetic. Hmm. Um, and many of the justices or judges, and I think this was not the Supreme Court, I think many of the judges could put themselves into the father's position there where, what do you do? Right. Um, and um, so anyway, I think if you can if you can find some area of the um, defendant or of the plaintiff's um, life that you can kind of prop up and say, look, this person is similar to you and me. Um, we're we're the same here. And then you've got um, you've got a little bit more chance of a favorable outcome. Um, and this, I want to say, is why diversity is important hmm. on it's, it's why um, we need representation from, um, you know, everybody on the bench, even to the point to where, I mean, let's, let's call some more judges, you know, let's open up some slots. Let's so that the, the, the bench can be more diverse. Rep if representatives for them. Yeah. If, if you've got a panel of three judges and it's a random panel and you have one person of color sitting on a court of, you know, 10 or 11 um, judges, and they, they're just rotating through these panels, then mm -hmm. they're not going to have the opportunity to see as many cases. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, you know, I think it's, I mean, what we were talking about there, I think it was also just, I think we just all need to recognize that this is part of who we are. Like we are, as Kenneth Burke talks about, right? It's like we, our interpretation of life um, is to a certain extent a result of all the things that we've experienced. And if we have fond memories with 
where we've interacted with people that you know may have broken one or two uh, rules here or there, right? <laughs> but we 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 know. Mm-hmm. We yeah. know, we, we, but we know kind of their, their people and we don't say like, okay, just because this person has done that means that they're the same as a murderer. Yeah, you yeah. Know, or, or, or things like that. I, uh, I absolutely agree. And I think that it's important also for, for um, especially people who sit in positions of authority over other people mm-hmm. to do the work and maybe in every single case to... And maybe this is something that um, that judges need training on the the concept of identification. Right. I mean, we talk about it in terms of race and class and bias, right? Mm. But we don't necessarily train people um, to to pay attention to the ways that they identify with other people, right? We right. just say, don't let race factor into this. Don't let don't let class factor into this. But but maybe we can go a little bit further and say. You know, how are you identifying with, you know, these people and, and you know, these these parties, mm-hmm. uh, maybe some of the facts that are presented help you to identify with one party over another, um, or maybe some of the facts that are presented cause you not to identify with any of the parties at all. And then where do you come in right. to the conversation? So um, I think identification needs some exploration. It can really be developed um, in the law to to even the playing field, and to um, to help the law to become a lot more objective hmm. instead of. I mean, to a certain extent, you do want to have a situated perspective because, in the end, we wouldn't want to be judged by computers. We really wouldn't. Like, you know, uh, we want a beating human heart to be able to connect with ours in some kind of way. Right. I, I, yeah. I want a human to judge me, not a not a mm-hmm. computer or an automated automated phone bank that says you mm-hmm. did this. Therefore, you do this. Um, but, but you, but, but, but you, you do want, want, but you also want exact fairness. Right. That's 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 yeah, what you want. You want so fairness. And I mean, how fair is a system where all of the people deciding um, the outcome of the case look the same. Yeah, exactly. Or look different than the one who is the defendant. Yeah, right? look different than the one who is different coming life up experiences, think, different song. Yeah. And I and I have to um, I have to give a shout out to our our bench here in Utah. I know many of the appellate judges personally, mm-hmm. and they are amazing, amazing people. And I I know a lot of them um, do this work of of introspection and trying to get rid of bias and and things like that. Um, but I think that there there's some work that can be done um, just at, you know maybe nationally mm-hmm. and at a level where you just say you know it's identification training, not mm-hmm. just bias training, right? It's identification training, right? Um, that I think when you when you couch things when you couch the conversation in those terms, it, it, it elucidates the conversation. It becomes a little bit more clear, you know, things, things like golf, golfing, you know, did the defendant just get back from a golf trip or, um, were they just on a cruise or were they just traveling to Europe? You know what I mean? Like things that would maybe suggest that they're, um, in a different socioeconomic, you know, level or do they have children who attend a certain school um th- things like that just all of these things that that go into identification and bias that's it's way broader than just race and it's mm. way broader than just class yeah and it's, i think i think that uh, you know lawyers need to be conscious of this too say like well there's always something that connects us mm-hmm. just because we're humans like even if we have like like Burke says, two humans with completely different experiences of life will not be able to communicate. But there are no two humans like that. If nothing else, our biological functions are similar, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, although it it would be good to have more women probably on the court, but you know, with certain also you know, different biological functions. But but uh, just to finish that point, but, but we have court, we have certain things that we all get tired. We all need food. We all. Mm-hmm. Most people experience if they've been a parent, you know, we have all these things that can connect us. Yeah, yeah. So but speaking, speaking of women yeah. on the court, court, this is the first time there's been a female 
majority on the Utah Supreme Court. Um, interesting. Hmm. Which is awesome. Um, a couple of those judges were stolen from the Utah Court of Appeals. Ah. And <laughs> so it used to be a female majority there, and now it is not. Um, there are only two females that I know of. Um, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I think there are only two now on the Court of Appeals. But anyway, um, but yeah, those things make a difference um, mm. in the analysis that comes that comes out in the outcome, in the analysis, in the way that things factor in. I mean, you like to think that they don't. You really do like to think that they don't. But I just got back from a, um, a CLE with the five, featuring the five um, Utah Supreme Court justices who had ever served and were currently serving. C- CLE, what does that stand for? Continuing Legal Education. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm panel there um where christine durham the first female justice to ever serve on the utah supreme court talked about how her fe- her experience as a female factored into um this one case um that had to do with considering pregnancy as a tort um or right. an injury mm-hmm. that happened um when there was a um a, i think it was a vasectomy that was that had failed and um, she, the wife got pregnant and was on these, um, this medication for schizophrenia and she had to go off the medication when she got pregnant and it oh, just goodness. absolutely destroyed her, yeah, yeah, yeah. her psyche. And, and anyway, um, none of the male members of the court could understand or fathom that a pregnancy could be an injury. And she wrote a dissent and said, no, it, this is an injury. This is for sure an injury where the couple had, you know, taken precautions to make sure that they would not get pregnant. So anyway, things like that, they end up factoring in. I mean, especially where you hear stories like that. Definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, yeah, as someone who's just, you know, obviously as a man, you just watch it from <laughs> second hand, but mm-hmm. you yeah. do realize and this what, what the impact it is. This yeah. was, I think, in the 90s. And right. I feel like people are a lot more aware nowadays. Um, yep. Uh, certain areas, at least. <laughs> yeah. In certain areas. We've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. I'm sure still. So. so there's, on the one hand, you have the cases where you're able to... Someone said that there's no one as strong in court as a weak old lady. You know, <laughs> that... <laughs> Because there's no one that the court will, or a court, or an or an audience, or a jury will be as quick to avenge as yeah. as uh, as as a little old lady, right? I mean, there's there's one there's one, and that that makes you kind of bring into um, into the conversation the difference between identification and sympathy. I mean, I think there's a good paper there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's the difference between identification in these proceedings and and sympathy, hmm. and whether the court sympathizes um, with you versus identifies with you? That's that would be an interesting thing to study for an academic. And so you have, on the one hand, you have um, the father or gang member, right? Those, those identifications there, right? The, are you calling it this or the other? Um, mm-hmm. Where it was. Uh, hard to undo the kind of the the tone or the identification that had been set already, the label yeah. of this person as a gang member. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you had the other 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 ones where there were also labels that have been placed, right, on the child molester versus <laughs> or the father versus father. He was the father, yeah. The tickler, yeah. right? Uh, and Hitler. Uh, the Hitler father. <laughs> yeah, well, right. Someone who held you here, a child molester. Obviously, this is something we need to yeah. stop, right? And or yeah. or, or the the uh, abusive uh, ex-husband that abuses our, our abusive common child. Abusive ex-husband versus father protecting the right. the grandmother. Protecting yeah. the grandmother. Um. And. And the grand, and then the grandmother in the one case, um, who, I mean, really the the defense in that case, the insurance company in that case, tried to present her as a complainer. But it was really actually difficult to get information from her about her injuries. She was the type of person who just didn't talk about them, hmm. and her husband was really the impetus behind the lawsuit. So I guess they they if they wanted to, I guess they could try to just call her an ambulance chaser or something like that. Or yeah, not, yeah. not well, that's the lawyers, I guess, but people uh, that just like 
uh, uh, unnecessarily libelous people that just are yeah. gold chasers, I guess, or, or trying yeah. to trying to get win something from a company by spurious yeah. lawsuits, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So big difference um, between the labels that stick um, mm-hmm. and to what yeah. extent you're able to make the judges make the judges actually uh, recognize that or identify I guess identify with, with, the, with these people and their situation yeah and uh, so yeah so you had so you have some wins but obviously there are some losses and mm-hmm. it's uh, as you mentioned it's it's, it's hard to deal with sure. those that, that case left me a little bit disheartened mm. um, because I just thought oh if only I had done a better job of helping them to see him as you know a working father instead of how do as you a deal with that that because of my failure you could call it right or because it wasn't a bad, yeah. good enough rhetorician or getting good enough at these things which are well, you know, subjective in some ways the, so this, the, this, you know this this girl now grows up without her dad close by right or yeah yeah it's it's really hard as a defense attorney um i'll just take a second to say this uh, my 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 firm takes a lot of cases that don't have a lot of merit mm-hmm. because the defendants have the right to appeal. Right. And so we are used to representing people who have a right to appeal their case, but, um, who have a right to have chan- an appellate. Low, but low chances of success. Very low chances of success, yeah. They have a right to have an appellate attorney look at their case and make arguments in their favor. Um, whether or not those arguments have, you know, very much merit or whether or not those arguments are going to win in the end. I think most firm, if you take private clients, you do this assessment at the beginning of the case. You kind of look at the case and you say, okay, what are our chances of winning? Is this a winner or a loser? Um, We take the losers because we are, because we uh, represent people who um, nobody else would take. And so, um, that we're very interested in doing that and it's hard work emotionally to do and um, you do feel a little bit beaten down at the end of the day um just a couple of weeks ago i had you know one of my attorney existential crises where i just thought oh my gosh why am i doing this how much longer can i do this it's just so hard um but then um you know, you're reminded as you meet with your clients, you're reminded that the that they're people, somebody needs to do this work for them. Um, the system is just set against against them in a lot of ways. And for some reason, I don't know why, for some reason it makes people feel better that the system is set against them, that there are so few reversals. Like, oh, our system is, obviously our system's a good system because there are so few reversals um oh I, so I it doesn't make the clients way. feel better it makes but it makes like the general public feel better it makes the general public feel better it makes people who are involved in the system who are not defense attorneys feel better um it makes them feel like the system is working as uh, as intended mm-hmm. and i don't know what that intent is um if most appeals fail so going back to how my training and rhetoric has helped me prepare for my work as an attorney i think it's much easier um now that we've talked a little bit about outcome Mm -hmm. and how few reversals there are um it might be easier for me to take those losses Mm -hmm. because i understand um the the framework the way that the law works the way that it's supposed to work um i'm not guessing as much as to why I'm losing. You know, I understand there's this basic identification aspect of it that maybe isn't taught in law school. Um, and that the audience makes a big difference and you can make really persuasive legal reasons. Um, and in that opinion, actually, um, the Utah Supreme Court said that we made a lot of great points uh, in our in our brief and and um but that ultimately you know there was no prejudice and so um anyway that's that's just i think that my work as a rhetorician helps me to understand the way that the law works on just a slightly different wavelength or a different level Mm -hmm.
But I, but I do think that this is stuff that is accessible to attorneys, and I think that most attorneys get there. Thank you for listening to the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast. I hope you will join us again for the next episodes. And if you have enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review and sharing it with your friends.